are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the OHBM Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Banatini. And on this podcast, we discuss uh, with brain mapping scientists in the field, we, we discuss cutting edge findings, initiatives, controversies, and tools, and also try to put them all in perspective. And today uh, we have uh, the people who uh, are involved with uh, programming up and uh, creating and keeping on forming uh, AFNI. It's an analysis package uh, that stands for Analysis of Functional Neuroimages. It's been around for about 30 years almost, uh, maybe 25 or so. And it's been really instrumental uh, in uh, sort of having a, uh, a high quality standard package for fMRI and structural imaging analysis. And uh, you know, there's been many other packages and I hope to get to those with other podcasts. Uh, but in this podcast, uh, we, we talked to you know, Bob Cox, Paul Taylor and Gang Chang. Bob created AFNI and Paul and Gang are, are part of his team. And uh, one thing that we actually get into that, that uh, I think is important is talking about um, what a package uh, should do in terms of allowing people to not only send their data through scripts, but uh, and sort of you know putting in models and popping out functional images, but how, how does uh, a package, in particular AFNI, allow people to sort of explore their data and look at their data to make sure that there's no artifacts or to find potentially interesting features uh, through this sort of uh, efficient exploration. And of course, data is so multidimensional, it's hard to do that efficiently. And it's so multi-layered now in terms of processing, uh, but AFNI tries to sort of thread that needle uh, and, and allow people to still stay close to their data. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that and, and a little bit of history, a little bit of other things. So I hope you uh, enjoy this podcast. Uh, so just to introduce the three people, there's three people on the AFTI team that we're talking with. Uh, the first is Bob Cox and uh, Bob, uh, pretty much uh, grew up on, on San Juan Island in Washington uh, and uh, received his bachelor's and PhD in mathematics and then applied mathematics uh, from Caltech. Uh, he was a, uh, a postdoc at Los Alamos National Laboratory and, and then he went on to, to several industry jobs including uh, McDonnell Douglas um, where he was uh, working as an engineer um, and he finally went to an academic position at Indiana University and Purdue University. And then finally in 1993, he came to the Medical College of Wisconsin and that's where I met him. And uh, uh, in 2001, he came to the NIH. Uh, uh, a few years, about three years, two years after I came to the NIH and, and he's been here ever since. So um, Gang Cheng uh, uh, has joined the group in 2003. So he received his... Uh, bachelor's degree uh, in applied mathematics and, and, and statistics uh, from Beijing Institute in Technology in, in 1985, which is interesting. We'll have to talk about this as well because he's exactly my age. We have the same birthday and the same 
uh, year. But I was just graduating from high school the year before. So gang, you must have skipped a couple of grades or something happened there. Um, so in 1987, he got his master's and from, uh, in mathematics and statistics from Peking University in Beijing. And then finally in 1998, he got his PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology uh, with a, a minor in, uh, or maybe that was the minor, uh, it, or uh, in a minor in applied mathematics uh, from the University of Arizona. Uh, and all of you can correct me uh, once I get going here. Um, and Paul, Paul Taylor is the, the, the third person who are, I'm talking to. He joined the group most recently in 2015 of the, of the, of the three people here. And uh, he actually received his, his uh, bachelor's in, in physics with a double major in classics from Boston College. Uh, and a PhD in astrophysics from Oxford University. And uh, he had several uh, teaching assistant and postdoc positions, but notably he was actually uh, a postdoc at University of Cape Town in South Africa. And so, uh, so like I said, he's joined the group in 2015. So just to begin, uh, so Bob, I've, I've known you since more or less the start of AFNI when, when I was a graduate student was that a graduate student? No, I, I think I, yeah, I think it was 1993, I graduated in 94. So I was still a graduate student um, uh, at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And I remember, uh, you know, at that time when fMRI was just beginning, uh, everyone, you know, there weren't many people doing it, but everyone was just kind of using their thing. And, uh, you know, there were some programs for looking at movies of images or time series, and it was really clunky and cumbersome. Andrew Jasmanowitz, who was a professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin, uh, he made this program called FD and then FD2, which looked at one slice at a time. But I thought the most amazing thing about that, and I think that AFNI has sort of kept this sort of tradition going, is, is it really helped me because it, one allowed me to sort of efficiently scan the data. Uh, you know, you could expand your region of interest to look at as many voxels as you want over time. And then allowed you to sort of iterate to choose reference functions from the data to use as, as you know, to use as reference functions in, any, in many different ways. So, but then Bob came along and with his programming skill and, you know, I have to say that uh, over the years, I, I have a you know, developed even more respect for Bob uh, just because, you know, he's one of the fastest, most efficient programmers I, I know, uh, and and uh, and it's truly impressive how he how he whips things out, as with the rest of his team too, of course. Um, so Bob, so thanks for coming. And uh, so how, what were those first years like? How did you decide that you wanted to develop this? And and um, could you give like a brief overview of your perspective of how Afni got started? Yeah. So thanks, Peter. Uh, I moved to Milwaukee in the summer of 93 uh, to get married. My wife had just gotten, uh, wife-to-be had just gotten tenure at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee campus. And so I uh, was more mobile than she. So I moved there and then I uh, scouted around for some kind of work besides flipping burgers, I mean. And uh, I ended up through someone who knew someone ended up uh, talking to Jim Hyde. Uh, and as he later put it to me that he felt by then you've been doing fMRI about a year and a half and that you were drowning in data. Yep. As, uh, and I, as, uh, I think I sort of ticked a few boxes for him. And so then I came there and saw so the first year 
and a half or so were pretty intense because I didn't know anything about how MRI worked. I didn't know anything about the brain. I had carefully avoided biology classes my entire life. <laughs> and, uh, so I was and so I was trying desperately to catch up to those things at the same time to contribute. Um, I took the two programs, the FD program for functional display and the FIM program for functional calculation and smashed them together and produced the FD2 program. Okay, you, you created the FD2 program. And, uh, and that was what people used there from probably around January 94 for a while. Uh, and then what happened was that as time went on, the neuroimagers wanted various things in 3D. It's particularly, they wanted a transformation to our favorite uh, coordinate system, the Taylorac Turneau Atlas. And that's a 3D issue. And FIM and FD were all slice by slice, 2D. And I tried to, to I, I somewhat rashly promised Jeff Binder, oh, that wouldn't be too hard. I'll just make FD2 a 3D program. Well, that wasn't actually practical. <laughs> And so I decided shortly after working on that idea for about a week, I decided I have to start over and come up with a new program, which I originally was going to cleverly call FD3. But then uh, as time went on and time being another week or so, I said, this is going to be a complete rewrite from the start. And so I'm going to call it something better. And I like programs, acronyms that are pronounceable. So I came up with AFNI, Analysis of Functional Neuroimages, but just simply because it's pronounceable. Okay. That's all. <laughs> I didn't actually realize that it's a, a girl's name in uh, Indonesia. I found that out many years later. <laughs> so that is how, that's how I got started. And then, uh, well, one thing led to another. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, I, I remember very much your, you know, you had that plaque on your office wall um, around 1994, I think it was. And you, you basically said, I've written, 50,000 lines of code, um, I'm done with AFNI. Yeah, well, that's a proof that you should never put anything in writing. <laughs> that is uh, uh, the title of a James Bond movie, right? Never say never again. So you don't put it in writing anyway, because it's, it's still in my office wall, this blown up copy of a memo. In those days, we didn't use email. We had memos, right? Yeah, it's funny, right. And so... Um, but yeah, so after that, I, I I left, and then I came I came back, and then you know things have really progressed, and I mean it it seems that right from the start, AFNI was kind of different than uh, for instance uh, SPM, in that regard SPM kind of came around about the same time, even though it was, existed before in the context of PET, but um, in a sense that you know AFNI always understood it seems like you know you understood the idea that. Uh, you have to kind of be close to your data. That fMRI data, you can't just, you know, model it right away and then just push it through this, you know, this matrix and then pull out the, the activation map. There's a lot of iteration. I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about that. I mean, it, you know, right, it's still an issue today. Yeah, the, one of the reasons I think Jim gave me a chance uh, for which I've always been grateful that it was that I had worked before and before I got my PhD, I had worked in a fair amount of data analysis in uh, 
in radar, radar and uh, subsurface uh, data, oceanographic data. And most of the people I worked with were physicists or geophysicists. And they were very, uh, those kind of people really want to be close to their data and what comes from their data, what people call the derivatives of data, right? New data sets from old data sets. Because they know that data always has weird stuff in it. Any, any particular kind of data has artifacts in it that come from the acquisition system. MRI certainly has like 50 different artifacts or something like that. And uh, subsurface, subsurface oceanic data has glitches in there, instruments too, that if you don't allow for those, if you don't are aware of those, then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, we're all gonna die. It's a giant wave. Wait, no, it's just an instrument glitch. Yeah. But uh, so users need to stay close to their data. And then that's the first thing. And the other thing is that I always think that users need to have control over what's going on uh, because this is research. Research, you know, the researchers, they may not be mathematicians and signal processors, but they're not stupid. They come up with new clever experiments that say, oh, well, I need to change my probes. They need to change the way things are done, or maybe we need to change the software because you know, it doesn't fit the new ideas of the, of the experiment. So, but they need to have control over what's done and they should have some ability to understand what's going on. Yeah. I'm very much against black boxes. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, black boxes are, you know, it's great once you have something, but it's sort of, and it can be very powerful, but at the same time, I, I even found working with Daphne in the early days, I, I wish I could do more analysis now, but in the early days, I always found that working with FD2 and Daphne and just in analyzing my data and being very close to it, having these tools to sort of look at it in different ways just gave me ideas. It generates ideas for, for looking at it, looking at other features of the signal and things like that. And so, um, so I think it actually helps to foster uh, not only good quality research, but sort of fosters new ideas and, and certainly you know, all the packages now, SPM, FSL, Brain Voyager, there's even other ones. I mean, they all sort of converge in some way. I think they're, they all kind of do allow that sort of interaction, but, but I think AFNI definitely is much, is very much like, you know, like driving stick shift uh, in a car where you, you definitely uh, uh, know what you're doing all the time. Um, so maybe at, at this point, uh, so right now, so, so, and this, please everyone else jump in if you, if you want, but um, uh, uh, as, as far as like the structure of AFNI right now, I mean, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that structure and then go into like maybe the big challenges and things that were hard, things that, that were dead ends, whatever. But like right now, uh, can you describe like, uh, I know, I, you know, it's AFNI such a, a massive program and there's many different things, but can you describe the basic architecture of, you know, what you do how, uh, with AFNI? Do you, I mean, once you upload the images in, they're, they're in a certain format and then, and then, you know, for instance, you know, you have plugins, uh, you have, uh, uh, at some point you had plug outs, but, um, uh, and you, you have other, these command line programs as well. And then, and then you have ways of interacting with other programs. So you want to just maybe, Describe this so the the non-initiative can get a, a perspective of what we're talking about. I mean, first fMRI data is sort of like, you know, you collect multiple slices, maybe in a volume, and then you collect that over time. And so 
what does AFNI allow you to do? Well, there's two things, uh, components you might say to the AFNI architecture. One is the graphical interface, which is primarily for being close to the data, graphs of the time series, uh, locked to image the images that of the uh, the images. So you click on one, an image in a location, you see the graph of that time series. You click on the time series that it jumps to that jumps to that location in the image viewer, and scrolling through things, switching between uh, making transformations of the data, simple calculations, interactively. But that that was the first part of AFNI that was written, as you might imagine. But the as time went on, the reason, in my opinion, that AFNI has survived is that its architecture is it's not a monolithic program by any means. It is, there's the GUI program is probably the most complicated thing because of all the things it does over the years. But the other things that do analysis are broken into pieces, the so-called, they're named programs 3D something which names were, the 3D name prefix was named to remind people that we're now dealing with 3D volumes, not 2D like FD2 and you know 2D slices plus time. Now we're 3D plus time. And so there's 3D vol reg for volume registration and so on, you know, through this you know, a lot of them now and hundreds, hundreds. Yeah. But the, the, the architecture of that, here's, here's this program, it, it reads in data, does something and writes it out and then it's done so that there's an end point. And so that the programs talk to each other only through data files, which okay. means that uh, there's, it's not this gigantic mega program that when you when something goes wrong with one part, the whole system crashes down like you know a glass, a glass cathedral. Yeah. The, and th that means it's more maintainable because if it was a giant, one million line program, because that's how many lines of C code are in the AFNI package now. I don't think it, I don't think it would ever actually run successfully. Yeah, you know, There'd be too many interactions that could never be predicted. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Uh, but of course other programs do this too, that uh, FSL is pretty much the same architecture. And, and there's a reason because it's easy to program. I pro you program this component is done. And it's and it's maintainable. Yeah, and it has the disadvantage that it's not all cleverly monolithic in a beautiful GUI. Yeah, and so that that even allows your whole team to sort of work on their things. So so what are like your 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 team people? Uh, so as far as do they each have a role? Like I know Paul, you know, has I know for a while it didn't do DTI analysis, and maybe and and I. I you know, I, I feel that when Paul came along, it, that that kind of took off. So, uh, was is that true, or how did that? How did like, for instance, that aspect of of doing as opposed to that's time series? Lar that's largely true. Uh, each person in my group has somewhat different role, and I think it's probably best, for example, to ask to have Paul tell us about how the DTI stuff came about, which is a little bit more complicated than the story you just outlined. <laughs> All right, Paul. Why don't you let us know about, yeah. Okay, yeah, maybe I'll say, just uh, preface it by saying, I, I, I think it's fair to say that of the number of us who are kind of programming full-time in AFNI, we have our 
kind of our specialties, but we, we definitely overlap and we all work with each other. And that's really nice. You know, I used to sit next to Gong's cubicle. And so I learned about a, st- a lot of statistics and we'd bounce ideas off each other and that. So it is a nice balance of kind of um, focus and overlap. Yeah, so I, uh, my graduate work is, is not in brain imaging. So I actually moved, um, moved in the brain imaging field from physics and I, uh, started as a postdoc for Perth Biswal in New Jersey. Oh, that's right. I forgot to mention that. Right. That was with Barat. Yeah. yeah. And, and actually, um, I, I made that move in part because I worked for him way back in Milwaukee. I was kind of a summer internship student person in the late 90s. On an interesting historical note, Barat's office was right next to Bob's. And I don't think I ever met or saw Bob during that time. Just ironic. Or just, I don't remember us ever meeting, but... Years later, fate brought us back together. Yeah, Brat's Brat's office was legendary too at MCW. I mean, it was crazy messy. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, but that's I mean, everyone's office has different degrees of messiness. But it was, yeah. Anyway. Um, but yeah, no. So yeah, I started working for him. So after graduate school, um, we we kind of stayed in touch, and I basically decided I was going to leave astrophysics and move closer back to to Earth for studying things, and so. Um, Anyways, I'd enjoyed working for him before. It was great. And so I, I did again. And I, because I had a physics background, he kind of gave me a task of looking at diffusion data because diffusion tensor imaging has tensors. And so tensors are physical objects. So it's a natural thing for, hey, let this physicist at them uh, and try to take that and make it work a bit more with uh, resting state in particular analyses. Yeah. So um, my, my goal with that was you know, a lot of resting state works with networks and that's the kind of focus of things and there weren't a lot of kind of network-based diffusion tools at the time, or at least none that I knew of. So I started programming on that and trying to write some tractography and, and improving on that and the interface. And um, I got put in touch with the, the AFNI people. And from there, uh, Ziad took up a lot of the, um, the visualization of tracks in SUMA, the surface-based viewing part of AFNI. And that was really, really a great thing. Uh, and then Gong, um, got a hold of the statistical questions and added a lot to that. So that's, that's kind of where things came out of from there. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I was a, I was a postdoc at the university of Cape town, as you mentioned. And so we did a lot of studies of um, uh, neonates and some interesting populations with both like resting state and diffusion. And a lot of the tools grew out of there. So um, I think AFNI had a program for estimating things like um, diffusion weighted, the, the tensor itself, I think, Daniel and Bob had worked on that, but then a lot of the tracking and some of these other things and, and gluing the, or kind of combining the, the network-based things um, with the tracking that that wasn't there. So that that was kind of the piece that I, I tried to work on and expand. And then when they had an opening, I, I joined the group and. Yeah, the, yeah, no, that's that's actually, okay. All right, that's actually, that that helps me understand a little bit more how, how it got going a little bit more. Um, but what's interesting, you bring out a point though, uh, you know, it's for instance, even developing diffusion tracking. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, I imagine you, you deal with this every single day, but I think, you know, part of what you want to do is respond to, to what you think the needs of the community are, but you also, I think you're always trying to sort of like think one step ahead in terms of, you know, providing something that you think they might need or that could work out well in terms of, you know, for instance, trying to, for instance, doing diffusion imaging, um, you know, there's many different, you know, the, and it's a problem because, you know, as you develop these tools, the field's still evolving. 
And so you, you sort of have to build them with the idea that, you know, either they'll be updated in some modular way or, or they're open-ended towards doing something else. And so, you know, it's constant struggle because you're constantly trying to be at this edge of, of what people want and, and, and then a little bit beyond that. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult challenge. <laughs> I mean, I think our, the, the, the core's mission is to facilitate research at NIH and others. So we're definitely, you know, um, you know, we work in the kind of brain imaging, but we're trying to help people who are doing more of the applied studies do what they want. You know, we're, we're in a lot of ways, we're not telling them what to do. As Bob said, we're trying to facilitate what they want to do and make sure that they can do it. You know, and then if there are some things that kind of step out of mathematical bounds or something, we try to discuss that and uh, as well. So it's, it's a bit of a, of a dialogue like that, but no, I, th I think it helped like working, you know, I was a postdoc in brain imaging. So I was working on the applied study. So I, I know that side of it, um, but then I, the, the programming part's a little bit more my interest. Yeah. Nowadays, so that, that helps, but it, um, yeah. I mean, it's nice working with people who have interesting studies and they really want to look at their data. You know, most of the people we work with really want to look at their data, understand it and that. So it helps, um, we, we learn a lot by doing it and we develop more tools to kind of do this and, and bridge the understanding better. Yeah. Yeah. No. And also it sort of says something for, I mean, it, it, you know, we're talking about this, this core at the NIH and that it's something kind of unique and, and really nice in that you have, you know, a, a supported core that what their job is to do is sort of develop the technology and help the users. And it's, it's hard sometimes in the, in the extramural program, you know, creating something like this that has such a critical mass. Uh, I, you know, I wonder how, how the other groups do it. There must be some sort of pitch in from other grants, but, but it's really nice to be able to be like that, uh, at least in the intramural program to sort of have a stable position and all you're doing is sort of developing and, and helping. Uh, uh, and you can do your own research as well, but it, you don't have to write your grant to do something, you know, and then on the side, do some development. I mean, it's, just, it's great. It's also, you know, that's very true, Peter, and I'm glad you brought that up because in line with what Paul was saying that, that because we have long-term people in the core, Paul's been here four and a half years, no, no, five and a half years, and Gong, more years than can actually be calculated. But the, the value of, say, Gong is, I mean, Gong came and he started by, working on group analysis in fMRI, which he's done tremendous work on over the years as uh, the projects that people do at the NIH and everywhere else, I suppose, to get significantly more intricate, the quest statistical questions that get asked among popular you know, group studies uh, require teasing out more stuff, more complicated models of, of, in the data. And Gong has, risen to that and beyond done stuff that is really i think unique in the fmri world and ex uniquely excellent that and but that's because he's been here a long time yeah if he was just a postdoc you know two or three years here then how could he have developed so uh, 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 this massive set of new tools that build on each other in his in his head you know that uh, he couldn't do it, right? You could nobody, nobody can do that and do what he's done in three or four years. Yeah. And the same yeah. with Paul and his DTI stuff and the newer stuff that he's moved into recently. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've been uh, actually with Stephanie for almost 18 years. 18 so, years. Yeah, I still That's... remember the time like 
came uh, to Bob's office for interview. So one question I still remember was that he asked me how to perform T-tests. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you react? You're like, why is he remember asking how me I this answered, thing? But at least I passed that question. <laughs> <laughs> that was a filter. <laughs> I guess that's that's a that's a good filter, um, but, but yeah, let's just um, yeah. Um, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing. I, we'll jump back into uh, issues of AFNI, but but gang gang, uh, as far as what uh, you know, yeah, I'm going to definitely jump into more of the challenges of processing today, and and some of the things you know. I always have this issue of you know people apply these you know come up with more and more sophisticated models, but then they sort of by applying this, they they overlook uh, potentially interesting things in the data, or else they uh, um, uh, either overlook it or or they don't account for it, and that gets people into trouble. And and now that we have so many layers of analysis, uh, it becomes a huge issue in terms of how you even are able to have the tools to do that. But but gang, maybe maybe start out by maybe talking a little bit about what you're working on. And and you know the latest thing that you're working on, and then we'll circle back. How about that? Um, yeah, sure. Like the um, issue of of you know subject response variability or things like that. Yeah. So maybe I I can share um, a little bit of uh, my uh, earlier work. Actually, I remember about ten years ago, roughly I, a user came to me to ask uh, how she could uh, perform uh, a group analysis with. I think like a five different factors plus a one uh, a quantitative pre predictor like age. So I mean, most of the time in, in FMI, people perform group analysis. You can go with I mean go by with a simple t test, or sometimes you could go with I mean regression, or most of the time you basically deal can deal with a general linear model. But in other case. You have five factors, some of them are within subject factors, some of them are between. So the mixture of both types, plus you have some quantitative uh, variables. So there basically at that moment, there were no tools available to handle that situation. So I had to try to figure out how to do it. So that the uh, facilitation role is really, I mean, it's a big part of uh, uh, our group, our team's work, and also my personal experience too. So in the end, I, I mean, I uh, work out the theor theoretical perspective and also I wrote a program. So that turned out to be uh, one of the most popular program. And my, uh, the paper also was the most cited one among my publications so far. Multivariate uh, uh, modeling approach to deal with a uh, mixture of uh, between and within subject factors, plus you have quantitative variables. Yeah. So yeah. that's a little bit earlier work. Most recently, I have been trying to adopt an integrated approach to handle Alpharma uh, data analysis. Yeah. So with Alpharma data, we have, I mean, you can count it, there are many hierarchical structure and many levels. So for example, we have, when you design experiment, you have a trial level, we have condition, we have a subject, we have population. Then you can think of uh, voxel is another label. Then you, when consider modeling, you can maybe include uh, 
hemodynamic response, uh, that, that's another level. So you can add these, those six levels. Yeah. How can we effectively incorporate all those uh, multi-level structure into the modeling work? That's a really challenging. That's something I have been trying very hard to, to work on these days. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, the more, the more you talk, I mean, I, you know, it's interesting because I think you're unique among a lot of the statisticians that I know uh, in the sense that, um, that I think your intuition about, about the nature, the variability of the data is, is, is great. Uh, and, and I think that uh, sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes people sort of, you know, just do their thing and they, they and, but, but I think you, you know, I think that more than a lot of people, uh, you know, statisticians or non-statisticians. I mean, I think you understand, I think you have a, I think this is the hard thing about fMRI too, is that, uh, you know, we're still struggling. I mean, this is the nature of the whole field in my field, in my sense, is that we're still struggling to understand and characterize the variability either due to physiologic noise or subject responses or all kinds of things, you know, warping the brain into a certain space and registration many, many things. And, and we're also trying to pull out as much information as possible that's interesting. And, and that problem is nowhere near solved. And sometimes people can kind of overlook it and get a good result. But I think the more we delve into it, we need people like you who understand the, the, the complexity of the problem and, and also have the tools, the mental tools and the, and the programming tools to sort of, you know, take a crack at at, at a real usable answer. So, so that's, yeah. Anyway, that was just a, I guess I wasn't a question. It was sort of like, a, I started just going off on a. a maybe, maybe to second that, I'll just, that, you know, I'm a physicist by training and you know, the statistics that you initially, I just thought statistics, you're kind of focused on the statistic and the units don't matter. And so, you know, Gong has really corrected me on a lot of these things and that, you know, how much the units matter and in modeling, the effect estimate is there and very important. And, you know, a lot of people overlook it and, um, I've certainly learned a lot, but you know, I, as you said, his viewpoint seems to be kind of unique in the field from that point of view, and it really strikes me as very powerful. And I mean, he spends so much of his time looking at the data as well. You know, it's not just a statistic coming out, but there's a lot of the data and looking at the model, modeling and validating and things like that are really important too. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I definitely think that both of you and, and also Bob, I mean, I think that you get, it, it, there's an advantage of actually being so close to all the users and, and having them come to you with, with their problems because it keeps you kind of close to the data and close to the problems and, you know, trying to figure out, you know, smooth solutions to all of them uh, as far as that's concerned. But, um, but yeah, no, actually, uh, um, you know, as, as both of you know, I mean, we've been trying to, you know, there, there's an investigator at the NIH who we've been trying to, you know, I've been sort of, off on the sidelines, but sort of uh, armchair consulting in terms of troubleshooting their data. But you guys have been doing the work and it's it's so hard troubleshooting, you know, somebody collects a ton of data and it doesn't work out the way they want, then you have to dig in and figure out what actually went wrong. And and then you realize, well, maybe there, how many other studies are, are like this in this regard? So. Um, yeah. It would be better if they would talk to us before they ran into serious troubles. With yeah, the, yeah. The data sets. <laughs> Right. Um, yeah. I mean, there should be sort of a standard practice of best practices of, you know, meta best practices of, you know, before you start your study, talk to your, talk to your people who, who statisticians or people who help with the analysis. <laughs> um, but okay. So let's just back up a little bit. 
Uh, and we can get into also the latest stuff you're doing in a second, but let's just back up a little bit. Um, we talked about DTI a little bit, but are there any other, like what would you say were the big milestones um, in, in the development of, of AFTI? Uh, you know, was there something that like was really hard to do and once you got it out, it, it was, everything changed? I know that early on there was some talk about, you know, standard, you know, creating bricks. I mean, bricks were, were you know, fundamental to, to having it, you know, interoperable with other programs. Uh, is there anything that you that strikes you as sort of like either especially challenging or, uh, you know, sort of a, a quantum leap in, in terms of uh, what AFNI could do? Well, from my point of view, in the, in the good old days, back in Medical College of Wisconsin, getting AFNI, the initial graphical interface working in a space of uh, a little under three months, uh, I still can't, I mean, I, it was such a frantic period. There was this uh, grant review panel coming to the NIH, and we had to have something working by the time they got there. And uh, I still don't... Uh, uh, really really can uh, sort of look back and go I did that <laughs> and then um, that because of the limitations of memory I mean you tell this to the kids today and they won't believe you but computer then we had 16 megabytes of RAM I'm not sure you could buy anything with that little amount of RAM anymore even a watch probably the Apple watch has more RAM than that yeah uh, and so there was not enough memory to hold 3D plus time, you know, a whole echo planar image data set. Uh, but so it could hold the 3D volume. But so then a couple of years later, uh, we were able to go with 256 megabytes of RAM, go to 3D plus time. And that led to real time image acquisition straight from the scanner into AFNI and image 3D image registration in real time uh data sets that now some people call 4d and some people call like me call 3d plus time uh that i felt i still feel that was a major accomplishment that was in 97 so that wasn't 95 97 i think something like that and okay. then moving to the nih where I, there's where things really took off in many ways because i was able to hire a team that well, you know, two of the members here now People who are good, they have their own ideas. I mean, that uh, I was thought we should do some stuff with DTI, but I didn't have the time to do it because nothing is easy, right? You can't just say, oh, I'm going to spend two weeks, I'll do eight or three months, and then I'll be done. DTI will be done forever. You know, it's never that way. Yeah. Or group analysis, you know, God's been working on group analysis 18 years and it's still getting better. <laughs> and, you know, that people with their own good ideas. That and uh, with uh, with uh, initiative, that that's the great thing that I have is these extraordinary people. Uh, we used to have Ziad Saad, I'm, who I stole from you, as you may recall. Yes. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and he and I developed together interprogram communication. So the two programs standing alone, separate, but communicating back and forth. Click here, the other program knows about it. Back and forth, and uh, then and so on this inter as time goes on this interaction and compatibility has become more important as you might expect yes 
But really, the most important thing about coming to the NIH, even more than the great people that I hired, is the more and more things working with our many collaborators, as you alluded to, including you. The, the, we get more ideas from people who are closer to us. And your group is only 30 feet from our group <laughs> before the pandemic. And so we spend a lot of time dealing with your group, and it's all positive. Okay. Not, it's not negative. It's very positive. But other groups, too, these people who do good science and have good problems that require us to actually think too. We can't just, we just don't give them up. Oh, this is the answer to your problem. Go away. That right. almost never happens. Yeah. 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 No, that's actually, um, and that's actually, yeah, that can't be stressed more. This constant, constant interaction with people, you know, with different problems that they use AFNI in ways that, that you, you know, haven't anticipated or also trying to do something that you haven't thought of and, and yeah, and you can either write a program or or redo something in that regard. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that uh, that AFNI, uh, uh, that's one thing about that is nice about AFNI is sort of it it it's been growing steadily, and has been not only helping the field but sort of, you know, like it, like I mentioned, sort of anticipating and helping to catalyze some of the research. I mean, I still can't even emphasize enough, you know, how cool you know even. Uh, 3D T-Calc, where you can kind of, you know, slide your cursor around and look at the correlations uh, uh, across, you know, in, once again, it's sort of a really mundane thing uh, that other programs may, you know, maybe they have or don't have, but, but being able to just do that and look at the functional connectivity in resting state, just as you move your click, you know, pointer around is, is truly powerful. It's like a lever uh, to sort of hone your intuition uh, which which really kind of drives then you then you could write a script to do something but if you do that first you it really it really helps and you have a lot of things like that uh, for exploring the data too I mean even in the context of what Ziad did with um, you know his 3d rendering and and uh, and whatnot so that's all it would be it's yeah it would be tricky you know, I can imagine actually trying to develop something like that in the context of group analysis or yeah, it, I can't even imagine what that would do. Actually, Bob, the, for Instacore, Bob does have 3D group and core, so you can do that kind of uh, ah. surfing through a volumetric data set for correlation patterns on, on a group level. So Bob, Bob's there already. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Instacore, the instant correlation between click click here and see what's correlated with it at other places in the brain is been used by people in ways that I did not anticipate whatsoever. It's been used in non-fMRI data in uh, time series dynamic contrast where they inject gadolinium or some other contrast yep. agent as a bolus. It moves to the brain and then you do the correlation of the time series there and you can find places where brain circulation is bad. Yeah. And once you say it, it seems obvious, but I didn't think of that. It's the people in the Neurological Institute thought of that. What, uh, and they published some papers about it because it's a way of quickly looking for uh, problems in people who've had strokes. Yeah, and you can imagine how long it would take to kind of do that if you couldn't do Insecore. I mean, if you just said, oh, well, you kind of imagine, oh, maybe the, the shapes of the, of the rival bolus curves might look different. Let's write a, this, you know, there's a lot of inertia that, that AFNI helps to sort of get rid of in terms of those early stages of those discovery stages. So I think that's, that's that's awesome. Um, I mean, how, how does how what's your perspective of how AFNI does compare in terms of, you know, how many people use a lot of users now 
use a whole bunch of different platforms, between AFNI and SPM and FSL. Um, but, you know, the field is only about what, like maybe 5,000 to 7,000 people. And uh, as far as groups, there's less, but uh, I mean, how many, do you have any metrics of AFNI downloads or use or anything like that? Or Not a lot. Uh, Paul will probably like to address this too, but I'll say that we used to, I used to collect statistics on AFNI downloads from our, because they were downloaded. Can I, just, can I just correct you that not a lot, it doesn't mean not a lot of users, you mean not a lot of metrics about. Not, <laughs> just, uh, yes. not a lot of metrics. Get that in there, yeah. Uh, I, don't, I used to have a script that would go through our web blogs and, and show downloads and things like that, and then try to parse them out to IP addresses, to, you know, to define distinct IP addresses. But I don't do that. I haven't done that for years because I've kind of lost interest in the question. And also with uh, dynamic uh, web addressing, the same different IP addresses aren't necessarily different users. Yeah. Uh, and that or clusters and stuff like that. So I, I tell you what my, I, I have a vague answer in my head that, that we have AFNI running on a, roughly a thousand different computers uh, and so uh, to my mind I think I, in my head I think a thousand users but I really th that could be off either way by a factor of uh, god knows what really. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I mean I, 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 that's and Paul uh, did mention we do cite ask people who use AFNI in a significant way to cite one of our papers but and at the moment, there's around 7,000 citations of that paper, the first one I wrote about AFNI. Wow. 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 That, not everybody does this. And AFNI is also used in components of other things, like fMRI prep has a mixture of uh, components from all sorts of different software packages, and some of those components in there are, are from AFNI. So I wouldn't expect anyone who uses fMRI prep to cite the AFNI paper because then they have to cite in you know, like 12 other papers just to say I used fMRI prep you know right. it would it would become absurd at some point I mean people don't cite you know Galileo's papers anymore <laughs> although logically you should I suppose but, yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah but all, no all I know has some you know, thoughts on this matter too yeah Paul it's a little bit hard to answer we we do have um a lot of our, you know, we teach boot camps at NIH and abroad, and we've started putting those online on YouTube. So we, we see view counts and there's, there's almost a thousand view counts on the, the AFNI proc process, you know, the, the main processing tool for fMRI processing in AFNI, uh, Rick's uh, AFNI proc, and the kind of lecture that starts that, um, a little while ago, is near a thousand. So I, it's, it's hard to count, but certainly, I think all of us would say that we keep extraordinarily busy <laughs> So uh, there's quite a lot of users. We get a lot on the message board of people asking questions, emails and that. So, you know, at conferences and things. So I, it's hard to. Yeah. yeah it's, you know. I mean, it's either way, it's, it's, it's enough to keep you busy. That's for sure. And there's no, there's no decline as far as that's concerned, but, it, but it is interesting. So now I'm going to ask her like a, you know, like an open-ended question of uh, where do you think, uh, you know, processing is going? I mean, it seems that, uh, obviously, there's machine learning and there's deep learning, and then there's decoding and encoding. And, um, you know, there's different sort of group analysis. Obviously, there's big data, there's lots of meta analysis, there's correlations with multimodal. 
uh, work? Um, is is it just going to be these these packages that keep on getting more modular, uh, or is you know will things that, for instance even you know it's still a wide open question how in the world are we going to actually use fMRI clinically if there's no you know package like AFNI uh, that's maybe simpler than AFNI but just as sophisticated that can be plunked down in every single clinical scanner. So where do you think that fMRI analysis is going in the whole field? Uh, That's a, an excellent question. It's almost impossible to even grasp, much less answer. <laughs> I'll give you, I have several thoughts on that. I'll, I'll start with one and then let uh, Gong and Paul chime in and then we'll see what happens. But the purpose of fMRI is not just to make nice pictures. I'm pretty good at writing software that makes nice pictures, but that isn't the real function. And that is, uh, the purpose is to provide understanding, understanding of the brain, of, of, uh, of what it is to be a person and so on, whatever that means. But what, We've pushed fMRI a long ways since your original data back that I, I have actually seen, you know, when you had the data on those little tapes that you can yes. scanner with, uh, which yeah. were pretty, which by even standards of just a few years later were pretty crappy looking images, but nevertheless, you could see the motor cortex very clearly, your, your motor cortex. My motor cortex, exactly. But we pushed it a long way, seven Tesla, layer fMRI and so on. And it, It'll continue to be pushed more. It's been 30 years and, you know, it's not going to provide any more great breakthroughs in neuroscience, I think, unless there's some new imaging physics that comes in. And so from that point of view, I think an important thing in the future for neuroscience, and I'm not talking about clinical use, is, is going to be multimodal integration. Right. And the difficult, the huge conceptual difficulty with multimodal integration is that I'll give you an analogy to something I used to work on back when I was a, a, a kid, and that was uh, satellite tracking. Imagine tracking the orbit of a satellite. You could use different sensors, radar or telescopes, for example, to choose two, which are very different data, return very different data, but you can integrate those because the data from one with the other, the uncertainty and, and all that from the other, because you have a model that you believe that, you know, the dynamics of orbiting yeah. and the dyna and the, and the how radiation, whether it's light or radar energy is reflected from a satellite, you know, so that you, you believe these models, whereas we, we don't really believe our models <laughs> about the, the brain act, you know, the connection between what we care about the brain, whatever brain activation even means, <laughs> you know, and, and our signal is a long ways away in all these modalities that don't involve sticking needles into people's brains. And even there, it's still a long ways away because now you got this one little needle, you know, fraction of a micron across. I think there's a lot of electricity here. What's it like 20 microns away? I don't know. Yeah. So, uh, but multimodal, we don't believe the models that, or they can trust the models and that's the conceptual difficulty, but, I th that's what something I think for neuroscience is going to be important, but I don't see the way forward. It's, it's blind man's bluff. 
you know. So you think, I mean, I mean, with multimodal, I mean, trying to, so you've been, you know, working a little bit on trying to find, you know, even, even finding a uh, common coordinate system, you know, combining EEG and fMRI or, e, or MEG and fMRI. Are you working on like, you have that, or you're working, I mean, it's sort of like the problem of integrating EEG and fMRI data sets in some sense, if that, or, or even if, you know, once, like you said, we might get optical imaging, uh, maybe in a small part, if you could have some sort of registration and then yeah. register all that data set. Yes, what? we have some tools for that with uh, with the interoperable cortical uh, uh, mapping, uh, the kind of thing that's done, for example, on uh, ECOG that's done on uh, epilepsy surgery patients. Yeah. And, or uh, it's been done on people in other kinds of neurosurgery where they record from the cortex as an adjunct to the surgery. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the same thing could be, we have some tools for that registration and, and Mike Beauchamp has also worked on that kind of thing. You, you know him, I believe. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but integration of the neural models, you know, the back to the brain, that's, that's what I don't, I, I say it sounds important to me, but I don't know how to do it. Yeah. But there are other avenues that could be important, but I think I'd like to pass this question off to Gong about the future of fMRI data analysis, because I'm sure he has opinions, or if he, he better, otherwise he's in trouble. Um, I think as in any other I mean, scientific branches, um, um, your science and also as the research goes deep, deeper, and there are always some intertwined process, right? So you have diverging uh, we, uh, perspectives and also you have converging directions. So those two directions probably always go crisscross. So as a statistician, I tend to think there's something um, common threads in terms of modeling. So for example, let's look at the, the typical uh, modern approach in FMI. We use this uh, uh, Massive univariate approach, right? So we have hundreds of thousands of voxels in the brain. So the conventional approach will adopt, uh, I call it a divide and conquer strategy. So with hundreds of thousands of voxels, basically we build hundreds of thousands of uh, separate models. So that's desirable because for a couple of reasons, right? So one reason is um, computationally feasible Another reason, I think the main reason is that uh, that modern approach, we just use uh, uh, regression or um, t-test or uh, general linear model. That, if it, that, that strategy fits well with the conventional statistic framework. So, but the, there are downsides. We have to pay the cost with that uh, strategy. One cost is that we may lose some information if we adopt that strategy. Yep. But, to me, that's like a, we sort of adopted see the trees, but without the sight of the forest. Yeah. Why do I say that? The reason is with hundreds of thousands of voxels, we build that many models. Later on, when we come back, we have to deal with the multiple comparison issue, right? So we, we know there are a couple of rounds of uh, debate about uh, how to deal with that issue, right? But yeah. that, that's one big cost. Come with that cost because we uh, take this uh, divide and conquer approach, then uh, the the amount of information waste is just so big, so big. Yeah. Uh, 
So but I think um, in the future, probably we better adopt uh, into greater approach that uh, better way to, to incorporate the information. Instead of build many models, ideally we would build one model that integrated all the levels together. Then there's no issue of multiple comparison. So that, that's, I think, currently I'm working on, and also maybe that's uh, uh, at least uh, one strategy to deal with the issue in the field in the future. So when you say one model, just to clarify, um, what does that exactly mean in terms of like one, like for instance, you can model the human response with a few parameters. Uh, when you say one model uh, to get rid of the multiple comparison problem, does that, like how would you combine uh, how would you, what would, what, what various disparate elements would, are you trying to model? Well, let's focus on the voxel or region. Suppose you define uh, at least the RIs. So you, I mean, the traditional approach, you would build one model for each RI, right? Yeah. So the integrated approach, you just build one model, put all the RIs into one model. That way the multiple comparison issue automatically dissolves. Yeah. That approach you can solve it through a Bayesian multi-level model. So that way you're not just uh, dissolve the multiple comparison issue. Also, it fits closer to the data than the traditional approach. So that so you uh, there are a couple of advantages. One also you avoid the overfitting. The traditional massive univariate approach. Basically, yeah. you analyze each voxel separately. You face very close to the original data, but that's the data people in machine learning call the in-sample data. Yes, that fits well, but when you apply that pro that model to the new data, out of the sample fitting would be sacrificed or compromised. Yeah. Right? yeah. So yeah, because it's you only care about the individual voxels, like you focus on individual trees. You don't integrate the the global information. So that's why you pay the cost of uh, multiple comparison, okay, through cluster thresholding. But that step only takes care of the information shared among the laboring voxels, like a patch of woods. You still lose the global information shared across the whole brain. Yes. So that, that part of uh, the cluster's uh, issue is only, I mean, people consider that's rigorous, but that rigor is only within the scope of the traditional framework. Yeah. Once you step out of that box, then uh, the view is would be different. Yeah. So that's actually that's an interesting point where you're trying to step out of the framework, you know, that people assume is the framework. And but but now you you actually step back and realize, oh, you know, these these variables are related, and uh, you know this can account for a lot of variability in a simple way that that also right you can you don't have to you don't fall in the, the problem of multiple comparisons um you know you have a lot of big data you have a lot you know the abcd project or other projects like that of course there's cross scanner variability and there's people are worried that the effect size is so small um and people are just beginning to realize that you know there's heterogeneity in each subject um but there's also um as, as you are talking about now, there's, there's this response variability uh, that occurs uh, with each subject that if you accounted for that, 
and maybe a little bit of the heterogeneity of the subjects, you know, put people in more, subdivide them a little bit more, you would be able to get sort of much stronger effects to some degree. And, and uh, I don't know, it, once again, it's sort of the, how do you actually, how does, uh, you know, if you have one subject, you know, out of 500 and they have 10 runs and each run they do six events or 10 events and there's some variability, how do you, how do you even begin to think about, I mean, right now you just simply put in a time series and then, and then can, you know, group the statistical maps and then make your comparison. But how do you account for the, the variability with each subject uh, as far as that's concerned conceptually? Well, big data is definitely going to help achieve um, high statistical efficiency. No doubt yeah. about that. That's just the basic uh, statistical theory, right? But, but if we look closely, is that the most efficient way? Um, I think there definitely are some room for improvement. Um, I mean, we know, I mean, the more data, more number of subjects. Yeah, that's typically what people focus on. That's one dimension about the sample size. But I think in the field, people tend to forget there's another dimension about the sample size, which is the number of trials, right? Or number of stimuli. People don't realize that for a couple of reasons. One reason is uh, people usually a lot interesting at the trial level effects, right? So what you really care about is the condition level compared to condition or two tasks. I mean, we design experiment with some number of trials that just uh, put some convenient number like 20 trials or 30 or 50, right? So just whatever number of trials the subject could tolerate in the scanner. So um, for those reasons, I mean, it's, people don't pay much attention about number of trials. Right. Only think about the number of subjects. But if you think about it from modeling perspective, that dimension, there's a lot of wiggle room we can leverage. Yeah. It turns out the cross trial variability is a big factor. So um, I think my recent work indicates that we could leverage the number of trials to gain. I mean, you don't have to recruit many, like a hundreds or thousands of subjects. So with both dimensions combined, probably that would be the most efficient way to achieve uh, high uh, statistical efficiency. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, that's, that's, that's also exciting. Um, so just to circle back a little bit with AFNI here. Um, so, and also the future and, and, and maybe, okay, so there's, right, there's still this ever expanding, you know, universe of, of uh, users and potential ways of putting together the data. It's all, I mean, there, but there is also one sort of bottleneck right now that I feel all of fMRI is experiencing and that is clinical application. Um, and, the, and, and, you know, one, one issue with AFNI and it's, a, it's both, a, it's a strength right now. I mean, it's open access, it's free, you know, that everyone can use it, but that's actually kind of a weakness when it comes to uh, you know, clinical use. I mean, you know, clinicians want something that they buy <laughs> because they want it FDA approved. And, and, uh, and, and how, how do you think, I mean, do you think that, uh, uh, I can't even imagine, you know, some vendors, you know, trying to program up something like AFNI or, or, you know, 
or try to subcontract, you know, people to who knows, but I don't know. And maybe there'll be all cloud computing. Maybe it will be easy to market um, uh, fMRI processing or DTI processing because it's in the cloud. So what, what do you think of how AFNI might play a role in actual clinical use of fMRI if we ever get that? Uh, I think AFNI has some components in it, which are, use would be useful in any clinical fMRI thing. Our, for example, our motion correction image registration, which as I mentioned earlier was developed by me in 97 or something, uh, is still people, when they test these things, still find it to be just about the fastest one. Right. It was written to be fast and uh, it still is fast. But the, uh, I don't think the company would take pieces of AFNI. They would take the ideas and re-implement them partly for their own control. I mean, they, they should do it for their yeah. own control because they're going to have to license this and get FDA approval and they should, you know, I hope that they would actually do a good job, right? Because yeah. <laughs> I didn't write it. After it, it, it doesn't crash very often anymore, but I didn't, it, it, no guarantee that it will never crash. That's for sure. Right. And so I think that's just a simple example, but there are other pieces that could be lifted, uh, but not in source code form in ideas. And if people want to do that, that's, it doesn't, doesn't hurt me, right. but you know, that's a lot different than the cloud computing on the ABCD data, which is not clinical, right? That's on what, two or 3000 people right now or something, which is more probably, but it's a very different scale of operation. Yeah. But Paul and Gong might have opinions on, on that, this subject as well. You know, in the diffusion side of the tractography, for example, is something that is really certainly not perfect. And, um, you know, you really have to look at results carefully and kind of uh, take parts of it that are useful. But something I, that was impressed on me from going to a couple of conferences is that uh, neurosurgeons really find it useful for certain tasks, uh, kind of vitally useful to know where some major pathways of the brain are, before you know, they're deciding where to put the drill bit and what angle and how deep they can go in, you know, essentially yeah. that kind of thing. And this kind of uh, large scale information really helps. So I would imagine something like that really does have clinical use and application already. But the fact that I, I don't know, I, as far as I know, maybe it's just the software vendors like Siemens or something. I think the only tracking that could be used is probably the stuff that goes with the, the scanners um, that, you know, that doesn't, hasn't gone through distortion correction or other things that we might think are important. And I just think it, it's very hard to kind of prove or maybe go through the whole FDA process for, for anything like this without a lot of guidance. And I, I don't know where that process would begin, but if it's not really there for diffusion imaging, which really has a direct clinical application yep. already, fMRI still has a lot of work to do to, to even get that far. So it's, yeah, you you bring up a really good point. I mean, fMRI, you know, who knows? I mean, it might be some pre-surgical mapping, but maybe, you know, people are always hoping for biomarkers or, you know, whatever, but, but, but diffusion imaging, right. I mean, that's, that's really that, I mean, you see the tracks, let's say you're, you're trying to, you know, you have tracks that might trace a 
itself around a tumor, you know, not only even for invasive surgery, but for stereotactic radiosurgery or all kinds of things like that, having the diffusion track information is, is you know, so valuable and it's so immediate, but, but yeah, there's no, I, there's, there's no program uh, that does that. I mean, vendors make images and, you know, they, they were lucky that, you know, surgeons can just sort of interpret or not surgeons, but uh, radiologists can interpret these grayscale images and see a tumor or not. And then, you know, whatever, but, but something like this, that's a little bit more, you know, you have to sort of work with a little bit more just, yeah, it's, it's a little bit disheartening in some sense, because you don't know where the bottlenecks is. It's, it's some combination of, of lack of really desire to do it versus maybe expense of getting it FDA approved and uh, all kinds of things like that. And I would imagine the expense that just, you know, anything clinical is going to be so hard because of the heterogeneity and, and all you know, the numbers and things like this. But I, you know, certainly I, from the point of view of, of interest, I, you know, this would be probably one of the more important things I can imagine working, you know, really a clinical application of, you know, certainly diffusion and fMRI and these things. And I, probably most people in the field would quite like this. There's a lot of you know, group study and analysis and even there, you know, people, some people want to circle that back to, you know, identifying people with using it for individual clinical purposes or, or something like that anyways. But, um, right. Right. Certainly. I just, I think for most people in the field, it, it's certainly a hugely motivating factor to really want to see an individual health improve from these. Things. Yeah. 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 No, I, it's, I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm sort of struggling to get my head around like all these variables of, you know, what's stopping, you know, what stops, what, what we're in general, not only for AFNI or for fMRI or whatever diffusion, but like in general, what is, what are these barriers to clinical implementation? And, and, you know, but you still always find these, these uh, you know, these startup companies getting things going. And, uh, you know, there must be some mechanism for doing this because it seems like there's so many aspects, uh, uh, you know, that through AFNI has shown that, you know, like DTI, uh, the track tracing, or even even some aspects of fMRI that that could be used clinically today uh, widely and, and, and it's not. So anyway, that's just my two cents worth as well. But um, all right, so I so we're getting towards the you know we're already a little bit uh, beyond time, but um, uh, you know is there anything else that you feel you know in terms of putting AFNI in perspective against this backdrop of uh, not only other programs, I mean everyone's all these platforms are working together, but also against the backdrop of of sort of the art of of advancing fMRI. Um, uh, is there anything else? you want to mention as to like, you know, what, what's exciting to you, where you want to take it? I might just emphasize, you just, it circles back to kind of where we started with the discussion for how AFNI started, but like data visualization strikes me as still the single most important thing and large end studies, um, public data and all these things are great and your know, pooling of data and all this, but that still comes with the burden of really understanding what's in the data and you hope, I guess, one benefit of shared data sets is people will will look over the same data a lot and maybe you know share information about what's good, weird, other that kind of thing. So that that should help this process. But you know, and everything, a lot of what we do, um, you know, for AFNI proc and kind of setting up processing streams and things like that. Even that, you know, AFNI proc, I, I just checked the help file. It started in kind of 2006, and some of its earliest functionality too is not just process your data, but 
help you view it as you process and understand it and QC it. And I, um, there are a lot of good kind of quality control ideas and things like that out there, but people still always need to do it with every data set, even public. And the burden with large numbers of subjects is, is understanding everything still. It definitely gets harder, but it has to be done. And so, you know, for us, we, we have a lot of like some of the QC that goes with individual subjects, but then also at the group level. And now it comes into, you know, when a, what, what does it mean to QC at a group level? If someone has kind of very different behavior, is it because they're part, that's just, um, their results are really out there or did they fall asleep in the scanner? You know, you have to judge these things. So all the, all the quality and understanding, even as we leverage machine learning and all you know, these big tools and big data, I don't think that can get lost in the shuffle or, or things will really be in a problematic state. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's not, you know, when people say display, they, they, it's almost sort of like, oh, it's just display. You know, that's, that's really, as you, as you said really well, is that that's really, I feel, uh, you know, the interface that where the science is done. It's sort of like, how do you best get a sense of the data and approach it in a way that's effective and, and efficient? And, and, and you never want to lose that perspective of your data and, and a feel for your data. And, and that, I think that's what AFNI has been doing really well for years. And so it's, and I think that people, yeah, that's actually a really important point in, in structural imaging and also fMRI. Well, Bob started it, so it's all his fault. <laughs> yeah. oh, and, 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 and my wife really is to blame because she's the one that lured me to Milwaukee. So <laughs> uh, I do want to circle back to looking at the data, which uh, one of the written questions you gave us, do you still think it's important? The answer to that is capital boldface, yes. But that's individual. AFNI GUI that I wrote, I think is very good for looking at individual subject data and then surf skipping through subjects, you know, switching these subjects and so on. But looking at group results and stuff, I mean, Gong produces this beautiful and highly important programs for producing group results, but looking at them, not just say looking at the you know, group map and here, but looking at you know, the individual variability within the group map and so on. We're starting to develop some tools for that. They're not that advanced yet, but that may, for neuroscience, I hope that that becomes a useful tool for looking at the model fits in the data, not just say, here's the betas, you know, the average, the average act, brain activation in the hippocampus or something like that. But the, uh, the variability, you know, you find in any group that some, some people never activated this region. Yeah. So is that because their data was bad or is that because they're just different? Right, and you never would have seen that if you just sort of pile your data right. together and just look. If you look at the average, you, right. you say, oh, you know, if you look at the average, people are this high, this tall, so there can't possibly be basketball players. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Stephen Jay Gould thing, the, the mean is not the answer, is that the? Yeah. yeah, and the interesting stuff is in that variability, and it's not just noise, it's, it's, it's variability, it's differences, and that's where, right, that's where the biomarkers will come from, but yeah. Okay. So that visualization, that doesn't exist much in AFNI yet, though we have some, some stuff for this called Cluster Explorer. But I think that's also for, not obviously for individual, um, you know, clinical application, but for neuroscience, this could 
potentially become useful as it's as it grows. That I would like I would like to live to see that. Let's say. Yeah. But I'm so not working on it myself. I was this someone else's job. <laughs> yeah, gang. I don't know if you have anything else to to mention or. Um, I just have some thought. Maybe uh, um, I, uh, we all know that uh, scientific exploration is a collective effort, right? So um, uh, the hope is that we can work working from different directions. We reach some consensus at some point. So on one hand, maybe we want to um, see in the field, we want some sort of a guideline or even best practice, right? But on the other hand, probably we also need some more perspectives. I mean, it's a, a complex uh, process. So, I mean, it's just some sense of uh, diversity. Yeah, so that's just some wonderful thought. Maybe it's something up, up to debate, but that's just how I feel about the, the current st status in, in the field. Okay, yeah. Okay, well, hopefully, you know, hopefully AFNI will keep on going and, uh, you know, hopefully it will uh, um, keep on not only continuing, but growing and, and addressing all of these issues, which, you know, it's funny, you know, with fMRI is being almost, actually it is 30 years old. And, uh, uh, you know, we're kind of still dealing with, we're, we're sort of sharpening up, you know, making much more rich the, the, the same sort of problems that we've, we had from day one and uh, uh, very similar ones, at least. And there's no, there's no, we're solving them and it's moving along, but, uh, but yeah, um, uh, we're still addressing them. And these tools are really helpful, so. Well, the brain, it turns out, Peter, the brain is complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing, right? More complicated than, uh, you know, we have our models and then we have to take a step back and redo our models. And that's. Yes, and it will keep us busy for many, many years. <laughs> All right, well, well, thank you. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Bob, Gang, Paul, uh, for, for talking. And uh, obviously everyone knows where to find you on, online. You just type in AFNI and uh, there might be a few other strange acronyms, but then you'll clearly see uh, the AFNI uh, um, uh, webpages, but, which are incredibly helpful and comprehensive, so. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I think we'll sign off here. All right. Thanks. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping and is produced by Anastasia Brovkin, Ekaterina Dobrikova, Katie Moran, Niels Mullert, Kevin Zetek, and me, Rachel Stickland. Thank you.